You know, the great thing about podcasting is that it makes you feel like you can use your time in a much, much more frivolously luxurious manner. I know, a little bit eccentric, but you know what? That's just how excited I am because, like my past reviews of John, talking about movies we personally enjoy is probably some, are probably some of my favorite conversations with filmmakers or film lovers. But before I talk about that, I want to talk about the sponsors of this podcast. I've mentioned before Fountain being a pla- being a podcasting app that allows you to earn Bitcoin and stream Satoshis to your fr- favorite creators. Now, the best part is the earning side because, one, you're being rewarded for your time. And for those of you who haven't heard my announcements for Fountain, it basically lets you earn Bitcoin while listening to your favorite podcasts. That's right, just by simply, simply sorry, tongue twist there, just by simply clicking on the download link I have down below for Fountain, you'll be able to listen to your favorite podcasters and earn Bitcoin at the same time, which is really great because you're really getting the real value of your time, which you're giving to your creators. I mean, in addition to being able to support them. And you can do that also by streaming the same Satoshis you earn. It's really up to you. But at the end of the day, that's what makes Fountain such a great app. It's very voluntary. It allows you to listen to your favorite creators while making some money on the side. Now, for those of you who have a much more creative desire inside, that's where the second sponsor of this podcast, Anchor, comes in. I've left a link down below, and for those unfamiliar with Anchor, it pretty much simplifies the process of creating a podcast. I mean, there are many platforms out there besides Apple and Spotify and Fountain, but you'd think that you'd think that um, publishing an episode on each platform would be daunting, but Anchor actually simplifies that because just by going to anchor.fm and publishing an episode you recorded, it's going to distribute it across all the other platforms, whether we're talking Apple, Spotify, Fountain, Lisbon, CurioCaster, PodFreeze. It depends on whatever particular podcast platform you use. But at the end of the day, once you publish that episode, it's going to be spread across all over them, which is fucking awesome as far as I'm concerned. And another thing that's fucking awesome is my conversation with John, where we talked about John Wick. We've been talking about, well, we talked about in our previous conversations, which were mostly superhero reviews, about talking about John Wick at some point. And you know what? That We finally got to it. And we're going to be doing it one by one, chapter by chapter. I mean, not, I mean, obviously it's pretty far apart from chapter four, which the trailer was just released, but you know what? Fuck it. We just decided, you know what? John Wick is among, is among some, one of our favorite films, I think, I mean, and that's something that's still debatable, but I do. But we do talk about how, in many ways, it, it's garnered this classic reputation over the years since it's come out, and it's almost a decade old. So that's something we're gonna we briefly mention in the episode. So anyway, I guess this is enough of my babbling because when you try and describe your excitement for a film that you're personally invested in, it's really hard to articulate it in a way without fucking up the way you try and present it. So. Just enough of my babbling. I hope you enjoy the show. Oh, yeah, and check out the the crypto links I've left down below for those of you who want to buy some Bitcoin. Check out the sponsors. Support me on my Patreon. Check out my Substack. And, uh, yeah, enjoy the show. So we're finally at John Wick. We've talked about it multiple times for our pot, our episodes so, John, you want to start with, because technically you are the one who got me introduced to John Wick. <laughs> yeah, I still remember when we, uh, we saw this back in 2017. And, uh, chapter I two. Believe, 
Yeah, and I think we did like a uh, out of the theater in one of our cars, uh, kind of like an off-the-cuff review. And uh, at that time, it just felt like this was more than your typical action movie. And that's kind of what I uh, what I take away the most from the John Wick franchise is that it separates itself from like conventional action movie flair and conventional action movie tropes. It kind of transcends the genre in a way. John Wick himself is this stoic, uh, almost fatalistic character with his death drive that is at the same time very badass. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, I adore the movie, at least the first one. My opinion of the second and third movie uh, kind of wanes. The, the, the saga kind of wanes for me as it goes on. But the first film is the strongest and also the most uh, emotionally re- resonative because how could you not, you know, sympathize with him losing his puppy <laughs> in the beginning of the film? I mean, everybody wanted to kill old Theon Greyjoy. <laughs> yeah, fuck Marley. <laughs> I mean, that dog was beaten to death. We just watched Marley grow up and die naturally. I mean, I don't know. I've never seen Marley and me, but I remember the just the amount of attention that movie got. And I guess it was melodramatic, but if you look at the fact that he didn't even have the dog for a day, one fucking day, right? It's just taken from him. And by free guys, you know he could kill in an instant. And I mean, I don't know, but what was your first impression, like the first viewing? And I'll just give my impression because my view, I've seen it multiple times. And I mean, my views have evolved, but never really but still I've kept traces of my first impressions. So Um, first impressions of the film. So I would say that um, first of all, uh, Keanu is the, I mean, Keanu is just, he's in a, he's, he's having a Renaissance in this film. I mean, I think before the Keanu sense, I think before this film, exactly. Uh, it feels like before this film, Keanu's career was kind of floundering a little bit. I can't even tell you what he had really been doing up until John Wick. But he comes back with such a force and he's so charismatic in this film and empathetic. And uh, I think the reason a lot of people like this film is because it's kind of like an onion. And as a, as a, as a you know, film theorist and, uh, you know, screenwriter yourself, I'm sure you can see the, the layers of this film. But on the surface, it's enjoyable for all audiences because it's not incredibly complex. But as you start to peel the layers back of the character of John Wick in the world, you start to see a little bit more of the complexity. So it's multifaceted in that way. And uh, when I first watched it, I didn't appreciate some of the deeper themes. I just thought it was a badass action movie and a really cool revenge flick. And who doesn't love a revenge flick? Uh, I, I really loved, uh, and you know, even Keanu is just like, I'm thinking I'm back. <laughs> All these little one-liners, you know, so catchy. And uh, I left with a big smile on my face, but yeah, it was it was a really enjoyable action film for me. And I'm not one that really typically likes action movies. So that was my first impression that uh, I just had like a huge appreciation for what the filmmakers did and for what Keanu did, because this might be my favorite movie of Keanu, to be honest, John Wick, number one. For me, more than The Matrix. That's a tough, that's tough. 
given yeah. the philosophical undertakings of the matrix the first matrix well right. i'm saying that i like keanu's I, I should i shouldn't misspeak i like keanu's performance in this film more than i like his performance in the other the matrix is a better film and i like the matrix more but i like john him as john wick more than him as neo personally yeah i mean but there is an appreciation for his kooky acting in some sense i mean i was listening to a podcast of the rewatch you know you're familiar with the rewatchables yeah they were making fun of uh the devil's advocate and how keanu reeves is miscast in that movie and to some extent maybe but i guess there's an absurdity to his old style of acting where he goes over the top that you just, he's like that family member you love because he's just so kooky, but you can't really, you can't even, you can't even be cruel enough to cringe whenever he does something ridiculous. I know it's a weird analogy, but my first impression, the first John Wick were that it's definitely above the average action film and the stylistic and I could see that it had a lot of stylistic influence to, and it made me think of some, a bit of anime. I know that there's deeper layers and more a, a variety of different cinematic influences like Hong Kong cinema, Japanese cinema, but just that gra- helped me gravitate towards it. It made me fascinated with the idea that there would be a sequel because, and I thought there was some definitely something complex because I, th- I mean, I think the rules of John Wick, the world he inhabits, are done in a way where they're not totally explained, but they're executed so well that you, you get an understanding of how that world functions. And it made me think of, in many ways of, because we've spoken in the past, how I think of John Wick as the live action adaptation of Spike Spagel from Cowboy Bebop. But in a way where it's not direct, where they just took the influence. And since Keanu Reeves was originally meant to play Spike Spagel, which I don't think would have worked given his, he's how significantly older he is. And uh, I just felt that there were just so many similarities. I mean, Spike Spagel and John Wick's backstories are, are almost identical in terms mm-hmm. of the way that they, they, they are approached. But over the years i've i've developed i've I've obviously seen the deeper elements of the john wick series and how he is such a fatalistic character and even though the ones are more the other the other two are definitely they have more action and it's even more stylized but i don't think they've lost track of that i think they've been able to expand it you know who lance reddick the guy who plays the concierge at the continental is he thinks of the first one as cinema while the other two just two great films but he considers the first one personally cinema. And what are your thoughts on that? The first film to the cinema. I think I would agree with that. I think the first film is very tight and uh, it plays into, like you said, it plays into Keanu's goofy act. I mean, let's be honest. We, we all love Keanu, but he's not the strongest actor in no. terms of, uh, you know, in terms of more serious films, but this film is very well tailored to his abilities. And, uh, He's just incredibly badass throughout. Um, and also, I mean, just on a technical level, the film's choreography and it's cinematography is, is perfect. And I believe it was directed by two stunt coordinators. Chad, or, uh, no, uh, let me check real quick because I always confuse who wrote the script with who directed the film because 
It was actually what? directed by two people, but then the on other Deadpool, right? That worked on Deadpool. There's like two assistant directors from Deadpool or something like that. No, Deadpool 2 was directed by one of them while it was separated. Okay. Okay, okay. I'm double checking right now. The two, oh, it was directed by Chad Stahelski, but it was written by Derek Kolstad. And they were, apparently they were the two, they were the two stunt doubles for, for Keanu Reeves in the Matrix movies. But Chad Stahelski, what's, let's double, he's, he's directed all of them. Wow, that's pretty cool. I think it was the other, I think it was Derek Holt. Let me see who directed Deadpool 2 because they remember in Deadpool 2 credits, they showed that it was, they showed the, the name of the director, the guy who killed the dog, do, one of the guys who killed the dog in John Wick. I'm checking right now. Huh, David Leach. Oh, he was, he is actually, I guess he also helped direct the first John Wick. Yeah, he also directed the first John Wick with Chad Stahelski, but he went on to do Chapter 2. No, he went on to do Deadpool 2 and Atomic Blonde. And I don't know what you th- if you've seen Atomic, film. if you've seen Atomic Blonde, but there's rumors of them doing a spinoff with Atomic, with Atomic Blonde and John Wick. And strangely enough, one of the Russian actors Russian actors from John Wick is an atomic blonde, which takes place uh, takes place around the time where the Berlin Wall was falling. Interesting. That would be know. a little bit cool. That'd be pretty cool. I don't know if he's the same character in that movie because he dies in John Wick, the character. Hmm. But uh, yeah, going back to, I mean, what were we talking about? I kind of lost track since we were looking for the directors. Shit. Um, just about how kind of like technically proficient the film is uh choreographed and shot the fight sequences unlike some other films uh, you are is very well done it's very concise you can see what's happening uh very badass i also love the uh i love the little effect they do with the uh when john's speaking in another language and it kind of like um drips onto the screen and fades away like that's just like another stylistic choice that they made they made a lot of small stylistic choices in this film um that just overall just you know as a conglomerate really work and uh i love i love keanu's wardrobe in this film mm-hmm. uh and, and the tuck the, the black and white very cool um the color grading in this film is very cold and blue uh, music Use of music, of course. Yeah, I mean, who can forget that nightclub scene? So badass. Oh, yeah, and just the song, You're Alive. The, what's interesting about that, well, the song is actually called Fink, but the lyric, the, the part where the lyrics say you're alive repeatedly while he's killing people perfectly illustrates the character because, well, the great thing about the John Wick franchise overall is that they use back a lot of background components to paint his character further because take a look at his tattoos the tattoo on his back is apparently some latin phrase i don't know how to pronounce it but i looked it up and it says fortune favors the brave and when you look at john wick yeah he's rusty and he's not a perfect hero he's like the ultimate killing machine but you see him get his head his teeth kicked in he gets hit by a car and he's limping 
like he can barely stand and yet he survives these encounters most people would be too afraid to even confront it's almost like fate is just looking out for him in many ways i mean not and they do talk about they you they do mention fate in this movie sometimes but almost just like like as an analogy for the fact that this man cannot have peace. I mean, even the character played by Mik, Mik, Mikhail Nikvist, rest in peace, he said, God, we are cursed men. God took your wife as punishment. He's basically telling him that men like them, they live in a dark, in a very evil, corrupt place, and that they're pretty much cursed. And hell, that kind of carries on for a the rest of the John Wick franchise. Absolutely. Um, and even a little bit until that point, John Wick himself almost represents this. Uh, you can almost say he's kind of like the Thanatos uh, death drive personified. He, he is almost like this, not only the boogeyman, like a grim reaper, the fear. I mean, that's one of the coolest parts. I mean, when that when, intro, um, that intro that, just passed, not only that, when, um, when the uh, I forget the name of the crime lord, the crime lord Vigo? Uh, who's Vigo. When Vigo comes to terms of what his son has done, and his son is trying to uh, kind of reconcile it, being like, "Oh, father, I'll fix it," and he just like, grabs him by the neck. And he's like, "You will do nothing. You know, he will come for you." <laughs> it's like, "Whoa!" You get chills every time I watch that scene. Oh, uh, like, remember the parodies we used to make of how you would frame that in a more comedic sense, even though there is something comedic because. Before he gives him that, not just listen to a word I said. <laughs> like what the fuck? And he just puts his arm around him in a semi-affection, like you know, I love you, I love you so much. You're my son, but you're such a fucking stupid piece of shit. But uh... it's an anger. It's an anger from a man who's probably so used to being in control of every aspect now, of his life, and now, and now he's, he's lost control. Yeah, and his dipshit son has just basically—he's just basically. Uh, set loose a devil they can't control i mean that phone call he makes to john he's like is just it's so well executed it's not overacted and no dramatic music he's just like john i just wanted to say i heard about sorry about your wife my condolences john there <laughs> listen i'd like us to settle this in a civilized manner let us not resort to our most basic human. And then he hangs up. <laughs> Isn't that so cool that, uh, and he's, that a, it's he's not even gangster. said what John is going to do. He's a gangster. And it's not even said that John is, John is like, I mean, he's just reserved. As soon as Theon does what he does, John's like, I'm going to kill this fucking guy. And it's like, there's nothing you can do to stop it. It's, it's like almost like the fuse has been lit and uh, the match has been lit or whatever. And John is not even saying anything. Yeah, he's just listening. Very stoic. He and, and Vigo, he's not like deliberately begging. He's being sophisticated and civilized. And this is a Russian gangster. And an old and ever and in com it's common in cinema and maybe a little stereotype to make the Russian gangster a ruthless, cold archetype. But Vigo, the moment he finds out that, I mean, first. You, they give you that impression when he makes that call to John Leguizamo's character, who I think will play a vital role, role in the fourth film. Someone tells me he's going to get get him that car, but <laughs> but he's yeah. gonna, but he's gonna. But uh, when he makes that call to him, he says, "I got word that you struck my son 
And then you're thinking, oh, he's this tough Russian gangster. He's like, well, sir, your son. Yes, that's true. And he's like, may I ask why? Well, your son stole John Wick's car and killed his dog. And then he gives that, oh. Oh, they, they do that all the time. <laughs> like, he's, he's, yeah, that scene is fantastic. Uh, the fear is really well telegraphed. And he even asks the first question uh, John Leguizamo asks the kid. It's like when he, after he asks him, uh, well, not the first question, but the second after he asks him about where he got the, a car. And he says, the guy who owned this car, did you kill him? He's like, no, but we fucked up his dog. <laughs> He's like, you fucked up his dog. You fucked up his dog. He's like, you stupid motherfucker. You don't know what you have done. I mean. And you and- know what? Go ahead. No, no, no. Go. You go ahead. I was going to say what's interesting is as the audience that's being unfolded for us as well, we're, we're being introduced to just how badly this character has fucked up because it's a lot of that's it's done really well. Like, you know, it's the, the interplay between John, like uh, digging up his weapons and Vigo telling the story about, you know, Baba Yaga and uh, that epic music playing. We're like, well, this guy isn't just a killer. He He's is the killer of, of killers. He's a force of nature. This is Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers level shit. You know, he's a uh, death personified in a sense. Oh uh, yeah. In the intro, they give the. I always my favorite part of that mon that intro is when they. T- no, that backstory description is that he is a man of sheer will, which is something right. you know, and and pure discipline. He's basically a man who can take almost anything. I mean. But then again, we do learn over the course of the series, maybe there's some exaggeration because we thought that he did accomplish that task that Vigo gave him. But then you found out he had help from that Italian Salier, Salitaire. Yeah, the marker, right? The blood. Uh, Although I like, blood. I mean, not to talk about John Wick chapter too much because we'll talk about that event, uh, after, yes. like in the next episode, but Santino, I, I mean, I like Vigo more than Santino. Vigo has balls. Santino, he just runs like a coward. Right, right. Yeah, we'll get into that uh, when we discuss it because uh, I have some a little bit more criticism about that film and uh, certainly Chapter 3, which I, I'm actually excited to rewatch. I've only seen that film once. Um, what do you think about John as a, as a stoic? You know, one of the principles of stoicism is uh, being reserved in your reaction to uh, the external world, you know, things that happen to you and, and not showing much emotion. We don't see John show a lot of emotion in this film. You don't see him cry much or react a lot to what's happening around him. It's well, just did, kind of like- He did cry when the dog died. He was yeah, like yeah. early morning. And when he does, he, he does, but it's he, not, it's not exaggerated in, in the sense that uh, for what he's gone through. And he does have know. a moment of catharsis when he tells Vigo, when Ellen died, I lost everything. And that dog was my chance, my ability. So I wouldn't have to grieve on my own. And your son, your son, that's when he's just really getting angry and he just explodes. So either you can just give me your son or you can die screaming beside him. Yeah, I would say, yeah, that those two bursts of emotion are definitely 
pure rage and i mean you feel the impact of those words like i doubt even the stoics themselves didn't have didn't i mean people who are stoic don't have moments of explosions yeah i would still characterize him as a stoic even though you're right there are there are moments of emotion but he still he feels like a very stoic character well look at Um, all the shit he has to take all the pain he has to endure i mean he's thrown right one story from that club balcony onto the floor and they and he doesn't land on a table like you wouldn't like you do see in other movies. He doesn't catch like some curtain drape to slow down his fall and lessen the impact. He just takes on the full brink of the impact from the floor and he's still able to stand barely. Right, right. It's a man who endures a multitude of pain. Kind of has some um, some Bruce Wayne aspects to him, you know, a man uh a tragic figure who's uh, suffered a lot and there's something about that tragic hero that's so appealing to to the mass audiences it's like this guy who's alone and suffering but still has a um, measure of sanity yeah exactly i also liked the equalizer which kind of uh was a ripoff let's be honest but but did a good job of uh you think the same subject ripoff? matter it came out i think it was it came out the same, but I, I mean, very I, clearly influenced by John Wick. But I mean, it was like almost like beat for beat the same I, story, essentially, except I you add what the, the girl, Dakota Fanning, into. Um, I can't speak because I haven't seen it. And I know that it's. You haven't seen Equalizer? I oh, have, you should watch that. That's when I followed the Rotten Tomatoes model because of the mixed reception. I'll check it out. But what I. I mean, I, I can't speak for it because I know, though, that at least it came, it was based off a TV show of the same name, I think. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, that sounds about right. And if it came out the same year, it certainly wasn't ripped off. Well, but then again, people always accuse, but then when it comes to superhero movies, some people probably visit the sets and get an idea or talk. I mean, Oscar Isaac was doing Annihilation at the same time he was doing Star, filming Star Wars simultaneously <laughs> and then there's wow and i heard batman versus i heard that some what one move the captain america civil war had some commonalities to bvs and uh, and i mean not just because they came out the same and the fact that they came out the same year you never know if some executives talked or just like had discussions months I mean, apart it's, too it's a pot i mean yeah well they're not months apart i mean Batman versus Superman came out in March. Captain Civil War was like May. 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 So you never know. I mean, yeah. but yeah, going back to John Wick, yeah, you're right about the tragic figure archetype. There is something appealing about that because let's be honest, people are just so fixated on all sorts of their own. I mean, people are, it's a daily grind for people just to deal with their own bullshit. And for a guy like John Wick to be put for the shit he did, you'd think. How the fuck has he not unloaded on a group of innocent people? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see some similarities between, you know, John Wick and John Rambo. You know, John Rambo is a very tragic figure. Let's be, before we go further, let's be clear. We're only talking about the John Rambo from First Blood. The others suck. <laughs> fuck. I didn't mind. I didn't mind Rambo 4, to be honest with you. That, it's because it was directed by Stallone himself. And Stallone... He's not the best with action movies in terms of the emotional impact, but when it comes to the drama aspect of films, he's really good. That's, I, but he directed uh, the first one. He didn't direct the first one. 
Uh, the first one's the best one, without a doubt. I mean, also the most emotional. You feel the the, the PTSD of that character. I, I mean, I, I think that John Rambo is a much more, uh, he's a much more, he's more traumatized than John Wick. John Wick is a lot more stoic. Rambo is, he has so much internalized trauma and grief that he doesn't know how to cope with. And it well, comes out. Really, do you think we can really speak to that? Because we don't know the entirety of John Wick's past. And apparently, I guess he's some Russian, Ukrainian, immig American immigrant. I mean, you learn more about that and see in chapter three when he visits Angelica Houston's character that there's deeper layers to his own younger years. So you don't know what he went through. Or maybe he maybe he came from the Soviet Union. And that was brutal. I don't know. So we're just going to have to see. But John Rambo, if you're looking at him, I do feel he's a tragic figure, which sadly. Most definitely. But then again, remember, John, I don't know if you know this first blood was actually based off a book. So mm. who's to say, I mean, I don't, I know the entirety of John Rambo's story there because the book have, might have more layers. And I doubt when they were adapting the book, they were going to do an entire saga of pro Vietnam films. I mean, just, okay. Say what you will about Rambo two, three, four, um, four and I didn't four even watch okay. five. Four five is, okay. is I mean, it. It, it sticks oh. more to the roots of the first one, even though it, it kind of becomes indulgent. Two and three are more straightforward action movies. And four kind of tries to go a little bit back to the roots, as you said. But the arc of John Rambo is he's a very tragic and lonely character. You know, the guy with the backpack on the road, you know, trying to hitchhike, kind of like the old 70s the shy, Hulk show. The shy, the shy, stoic demeanor. Because the drifter. Yeah, exactly. Remember when he's speaking with that woman who's the friend, the mother of his friend from who served him in Nam? And you can tell that he's very shy when he's talking to her, but very earnest. Mm. Yeah, you can, yeah. He doesn't talk to people much and he just keeps to himself. And there's a, there's a gentleness to a characters like John Rambo and John Wick, but you feel the undercurrent of like fucking rage there. Like, I don't want to mess with this dude. He's kind but I could feel like the wrong thing will set this guy off. And uh, obviously in Rambo 4, they considered the guy, John Rambo in that film is very, he's very reserved for most of the film until he gets to the point where he has to start killing motherfuckers. And then, uh, even, early on, point, even early on in the film, he gives you that impression that he's a guy that just wants to live his life. But when- a pacifist almost, right? He's like, guys, don't go to this area. Like he's he's thinking of it logically, but the the missionaries are, kind of stubborn and uh they're insistent oh yeah and even when he the guy the i don't know the guy i don't know what kind of jobs he was doing because it's been a long time since i've seen that movie i might check it out because it's not a bad movie it's just kind of indulgent in terms of the violence that it's almost kind of pornographic to some extent Oof, way worse than i i mean it has a 37 percent on Rotten tomatoes that's i was a 69 percent audience but I, was, I wasn't expecting it to be that bad. Well, 37%. 37 is a lucky number for me. You know? Oh, yes, 237. Room, number, room 37, right? Well, we're Scorpio. Well, we're, we're Scorpios, John. Those are apparently our numbers. Are they? I'm a Scorpio, and I never knew that. <laughs> Interesting. What, when's your birthday exactly? Uh, the 21st of November. 21st. I'm the first. Very cool.
Yeah, but we were born different years. I mean, the Chinese zodiac were different archetypes, and I, I mean, I'm a interesting. Horse. I'm a horse, and I may I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a dickhead and have people learn that I checked your year just out of curiosity. Yeah, yeah. what is it? Ninety one. You're a sheep. Sheep. Oh God, I have to be a fucking sheep. You don't it's have like to the worst like, animal to me. You don't have to be like the sheep. If we're talking true. talking in Nietzschean terms, I mean, there could be, there's always the black sheep. The Speaking one of, I, the, I ordered that book. Oh, the black sheep of the family, yes. Yeah, you could pretty much be that sheep in the, in the herd that is killing off all the other sheep, you know, establishing dominance. I could be the wolf in sheep's clothing. Oh, God, that just sounds cheesy when we're supposed to be talking about John Wick, but. Oh, yeah, yeah get him back to the badassery of John Wick. So. So the world, what, what's your opinion on the world? They do a lot of world building in this film with the hotel and, uh, you know, the League of Assassins and all that. Uh, what do you think about that? And do you like that aspect of the well, trilogy? So we agree it's a saga, but... Saga, yes, of a saga. But uh, in terms of execution, I already said that I love how they, ex- they show such confidence that they don't need to explain to you all the rules. But... There's a sophistication to it that it's like a metaphor for the deeper reality in our modern world, like the forces that really govern the world, what's underneath it. I mean, most people nowadays don't understand so many issues that are going on or have been going on for so many years. They don't right. understand the effects. I mean, people like I take inflation, for example, it had been going on for decades, but people didn't pay attention to it long enough to see the significant spike in it. But... And it come, when it comes to the assassins, even the way they operate is they operate with money the way people are going to be operating with an asset like Bitcoin. They trade those gold coins because in many ways, gold used to be the standard. And they don't explain to you what those gold coins are, but given that these assassins favor them so much for the tasks they do. I mean, remember when Perkins, the woman that has some history with John, doesn't like him, she... Uh, she basically was trying to bait that guy from the wire because there are several actors from the wire play in John wick movies. The guy that looks like Morgan Freeman. He, uh, she says, Harry, isn't, I'll give you a gold coin. If you let me go, basically these coins matter more than real currency. Just like gold has more real value than fiat as does Bitcoin. But so in a way, the John Wick movies understand economics in a sense. Yeah, I like how um, organized and classy the uh, the assassin world is. Like everything is kind of like so well orchestrated and so believable. Uh, it's so fluid. It's just like this is like a real functioning. Even from like when you see that the the bounties are being sent to the back room and the women are stamping it. Everything is like, it's just like this functioning, flowing underworld. Yeah. Old school underworld, yeah. Well, when you think about it, tech, the rise of technology has only made us more vulnerable in terms of privacy. It leaves a digital footprint, right? Yeah, and they operate that more efficiently. But also at the same time, I like the rules of the continental, how they are forbidden from committing any work on the continental and establishes like this level of civility where these people know the reality that modern society doesn't know, but 
even there, they establish their own line of civility to have some superiority. I mean, I mean, honor code. It's hard to debate. It's hard to really fully grasp because one, they don't explain it all. But at the same time, I still kind of believe the matrix theory that, and maybe this is from John Wick Free, but at the same time, would you rather? Would you rather have the Matrix sequels rather than the John Wick movies just being a new simulation for Neo? <laughs> there you go. I think we all know the answer to that because at least, uh, at least it's another simulation, a new reality, rather than some over-complex explanation that the sequels uh, try to create. I feel like the Matrix needed to have been a one-shot. It's yeah. a masterpiece. It needed no sequels. Uh, John Wick itself also could have been a one shot, I think. But I appreciate the, I appreciate the sequels for what they are. I mean, they're they're brilliant and just building on what the first one did without over making it overly complex. Exactly, and um, I mean that's to be seen. What's going to happen in the fourth film but um if they're going to continue to uh you know if you're saying there's going to be a fifth one it's like oh man this could it could get very overly complex but i have faith that they're gonna they're just going to keep uh going in the right direction you gotta um, get Keon oh sorry no no i just i feel like keanu has a, a really good grasp of this character that um they know what they're doing yeah, and they've been able to do it in a short period of time because each one is like two and a half years after each one. I mean, obviously, COVID delayed the fourth one because the fourth one's coming out next year in 2023. And the yeah. third one came out in in mid-2020, no, mid-2019. Yeah, well, June was, or something like that, July. May. and uh, the Oh, man, okay. And the second one came out in February 2017, while the first one came out in late i mean late 2014 so they're just they're relatively wow. and most sequels are not that i mean most sequels that come out that shortly afterward are not that successful yeah and i mean they struck gold with that first movie and i think that they felt it and they doubled down with the low is that how, how do you think they struggled with the first one? They struck, I'm saying they struck gold. Oh, the first movie. Struck gold. And yeah, it, it felt, you know, it felt like action movies being a little lackluster. Like that was around the time where they were trying like the expendables. Stallone was pumping out a bunch of shitty action movies and Mark Wahlberg and Pain and Gain. There was a lot of crappy action movies. And John Wick kind of came back and brought it back to basics. Pain and uh, an action film? Kind of. I mean, not a straight action film. More, I'm more so thinking of uh, comedy. What's the, yeah, uh, action comedy. Um, but The Expendables, most definitely. And there's the other film that Stallone did with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where they're trying to break out of a prison. Escape plan. Um, or escape, escape plan. Where Jim, where basically Jesus, Jim Caviezel, oh, is uh, is like the sadistic. Uh, yeah. Movie. Ironic. Yeah, true. Um, uh, one thing I like about John Wick that we really haven't touched too much on is I love I love the character of Winston. I mean, I, I love his charisma, how he's this kind of like has the silent confidence as this uh, 
the overseer of this underworld and uh well the continental the, the continental right part of the, the table right the continental is part of the high table i'm not sure because they learn you learn more about them the third one but winston is definitely the the, he, the head of the continental in new york i mean right the, the guy enrico i don't know what's his name from he you saw him in django unchained because he was the original django he runs he he runs the the one in italy mm-hmm. um so ian mcshane runs the one in new york and he has a um he has a charm to him and him and john have a they have a beautiful like repartee and a reverence for one another like that's not explained like their first exchange together, you immediately feel their friend. Like, the history and the friend, the friendship. And uh, you feel that at the events of how the second movie ends, not to get into that spoiler territory, but there's a, there's a, there's a fondness that, that uh, Winston has for John, almost like wanting to protect him from himself. But uh, you can't, you can't cage a wild dog like John, especially like, after the events of this film, you know what I mean? He's just kind of, after, after his dog is killed, he's, he's awakened and it's like, he's uncontrollable. And Winston, you know, to his dismay, he's trying to, he's trying to keep everything together. But I mean, we know shit, shit hits the fan at the end of the second film. Yeah. I think that was probably the coolest ending. The way the second movie, as cool as this one is, the way the second film ends is fucking awesome. Where it's like the implications of what he had done. (laughs) ending of them but when it comes to the ending of the first one it could have just been ended there he just walks off into an unknown fate maybe hopefully a better existence was that new pit bull which i really liked because i like pit bulls but Mm. i don't i mean i haven't seen old boy but that shot of him walking on the bridge of the rock playing Mm. the dog that makes me think of the cover of old boy and i haven't seen that's a good you haven't seen old boy i want to Oh, oh, Old Boy's fucking fantastic. I've seen both of them. Obviously, the remake's nowhere near as good. The original's far superior, but the remake's not bad with Josh Brolin. But that's interesting that you bring up Old Boy because there is some sim- there. There does seem like there's some influence, and uh, in, from from Old Boy. I mean, that character in Old Boy is also very similar to John. He has this silent rage, the stoicism as he's enacting his revenge. That film's a re- pure revenge film. Um, you know, trying to get revenge on the people who've, who've killed, uh, who've ruined his life. So that's interesting that you bring that up. I've never drawn that parallel. Mm. And what, I mean, aside from that, what other elements do you take from John Wick that just can't, that you just like to revisit every time you watch the film? Because it's a movie you can rewatch over and over again. And I mean, would you say, I mean, before you answer that, would you answer, uh, do you think it's too early to call it a classic or do you think it's going to be, once it reaches its 10 year anniversary, it'll be fair to call it that? Mm, is it too early to call it a classic? I think probably it's still a little bit too early. Um, I would, I would like to see how it, okay. So there's a lot of films in this genre. I mean, you have obviously the big one is taken, right. You know, that, that started, I guess, kind of like, you don't agree? I don't consider that movie a classic at all. I call that film. No, no, no. I'm not saying that it's a classic. I'm just saying it was of that time. Like the Taken films kind of, uh, Liam Neeson's action films were uh, what revitalized that genre a little bit. And then John Wick came in. And I think John Wick probably, 
is the best of the of that bunch of films from the, the early to late two thousand tens. Well, there's death to it, and Taken, Taken is trying to have death by assigning complexity to the character Liam Neeson plays when it was because nobody would have believed Liam Neeson an action hero at that time, and they mm. and they just assign him all these cliche all these cliche tropes of the former ex- special forces. Yeah. And that was before it got so tiresomely ridiculous that it's almost become kind of like a parody, an absurd parody onto itself. But the third one most definitely is a parody. I mean, the second one it. we don't talk about. Oh, it's it's got awful. The first one is the only one you can consider, and it's a fine film. But you, you're right, there are. Some but it's still the nuclear bomb that started it all. It is, and uh, you can say John Wick is a. Uh, it's kind of like the gem that emerged from that. It, it definitely does feel like it's, you have like a lot of like, you got like nobody that just came out with um, Better Call Saul actor. Uh, I forget his name. Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk. Odenkirk um, that, you know, a lot of films are trying to like imitate. That's got to be a, a hallmark feature of a film that's an iconic classic is like you see films trying to imitate it. And I definitely see that with John Wick. A lot of films are trying to imitate that style, that that crispness. The film is so like clean with its action sequences and its look. It's like kind of like blue neon-y look and everything about that film is so fucking cool. What do you think? I haven't seen Nobody, but wh- why do you think it got it still got a really good reception if it's still using those tropes like a lot of those other movies try and rip off? I personally haven't seen it either, but I just had he- I've heard that I've heard good things about it. I mean, it has an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes critic score and a 94%. I thought we're going off the Rotten Tomatoes model. I still consult it as a metric. I mean, it's it's the only metric we have. So really, uh, that's objective in any way. I don't take it as a definitive model, though. But as a reference point, it's it seems to be well received, which is uh, you know, more than you can. Yeah, and you never think of Bob Odenkirk as the kind of guy that would break some guy, put a guy in the emergency room. I mean, he'd be. Whereas so- you think of Keanu as that. Keanu is playing right into his strengths in this one. I mean, yeah, um, that's and obviously he had the Matrix as a backing for that. Yeah, speed. You know. Uh, see, yeah, I'm gonna admit on this podcast, and people will shit on me. I haven't seen it. I'm gonna see it. Oh, gotcha. I'm watching Excellent. a lot of seven, 70s movies right now, so. Are uh, you going through the decades? No, I just figured, you know what, we all, I mean, the 70s was a good era for movies, and I've just watched a few really good ones, and I, f- I mean, if we, uh, I recently just saw The Last Detail with Jack Nicholson, which is a great black comedy, but mm-hmm. it pretty much paints that culture of the 70s, as does Five Easy Pieces, another great film by him, no with him in it. Mm-hmm. And, but going back to John, yeah, John Wick and the tropes. I mean, you 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 were gonna answer why what elements make you revisit it that you just look look back to analyze besides the world of the story. I I feel like the um, besides the world, I feel like the film is just very, like I said, it's it's very aesthetically pleasing. The action sequences are so well choreographed. The cinematography is snappy and crisp. The color grading is really cool. I think they put a lot of emphasis on the color grading. There's a lot of like, you know, blue and red, blue and red tones, and and uh, and um, 
you know, the, the color range can be dynamic at times. I was reading an article, I'm butchering it, but that was, um, was drawing a parallel between those, uh, some of the color grading and uh, some of like the uh, motifs in the film. So, I mean, they put a lot of, I think that they put a lot of effort into the visuals of this film. And honestly, it's a really pretty movie to look at, just not even paying attention to the story. A lot of action movies kind of are very bland. Like, this movie is gorgeous. Look at the covers of the of the films that came after it of the other yeah. movies. It's only become yeah. more colorful. Yes, and I That's think got to be I mean, something. Even though the second one's ending is my favorite, I do like the the poster of Parabellum much more. The mm. the orange the orange tinted look it has almost like it's the fine like it's the. I don't know. It just makes me think of uh, a film like To Live and Die in L.A. And that's a great film. Very stylish yeah. choices. You should check that out. I, yeah, I need to. Um, I've heard good things. You've um, heard of To Live and Die in L.A.? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I've heard fantastic things about that film. Uh, yeah, when it, and I mean, I would definitely be fascinated to see a John Wick movie take, I mean, I don't know if they filmed it in L.A. I know that they film a lot of it in New York and in, obviously in Italy with the scene in chapter two but chapter one well it's not even chapter one the title itself is expand ex, they expand for each one almost like we're getting a deeper layer into that world and the character of john wick like with each new film we learn more about him and obviously with the rules of the world of john wick you look the rules expand more of each film that you get an understanding of what's really of how that world operates but the first one in terms of motivation it's really just about the dog and how it, that was a bomb that just set everything up because each one just takes place shortly after the last one. Right. Right. Um, and also the films don't come out too far apart from each other, which is an interesting model for a lot of these action movies. Like you have like the Rocky movies were kind of spread out. The Rambler movies were all, I mean, they were some, some of them were separated by decades. Um, so it's interesting that they're going to bang this out with like two, three years in between each film and kind of uh, uh, five years, actually. No, wait, no, uh, 2017, 2019, and then 2022, three years. Yeah, so they're coming out like every two or three years. And uh, we might finish this whole saga. Like, it's there's not going to be a long gap, which I think is a really, it's going to be a really tight saga. Whereas like, can you think of another action film saga that feels that like, you know it's going to have like a perfectly closed loop if they really do end it at five and give it a really definitive ending like whether it's john dying or finally leaving and finding peace which i hope they do one of those i hope they don't kind of just keep this going forever yeah um, because i think he has to have that final moment he has to have that final moment of catharsis because even though he he stresses that he wants to live in peace. You, we all, but we, I think we pretty much know he's not looking for peace. He, he's a, he's a contradiction into himself. I mean, look how good he is at killing people for a guy who wants peace. He seems to be very good at, at murdering people. In addition to that, it just seems Kinda like he employ, he, he does things that are self-destructive that just lead down towards violence. I mean, remember when Willem Dafoe's character, Marcus is killed in this one and Nico phones him telling him the consequences of his actions. John could have just left right there if he wanted to, because the thing between the beef between him and Vigo was pretty much there. I mean, 
Vigo gave his son away, but he decided to kill Marcus because you know what? I just gave away my son for my life, so I'm pissed off. Right. Oh, technically, Vigo was justified because his son is a piece, is a cowardly piece of shit, and a dog. Right. Kid. Yes, of course, and uh, it was almost like him getting one last act of uh, vengeance. You know, like I can't save my son, but I'm going to take this from you, and uh, or even, or even, right? Exactly. But then John um, goes to get him. He does. Um, piggybacking on what you were saying a little bit earlier about somebody who's a, he's how he's a death killer and he's a walking contradiction. That's kind of similar to uh, uh, to uh, the Hurt Locker and um, how you know that character is a walking contradiction about how he wants to, uh, you know, basically leave home but as soon as he leave leave the war and he hates being this bomb squad agent but as soon as he gets back home and that scene in the grocery store he feels so empty and uh doesn't feel at peace he feels most at peace when he's defusing bombs oh yeah and, even uh, with even with the kid he's just like he can't really enjoy playing with his son he feels he's enjoying some of yeah you like your fire truck he's like he's enjoying the innocence his son can still enjoy but even there he's like after what he's seen, he knows there's nothing else left for him. Exactly. And, and John what, knows that there's no there's no happy ever after for him. I mean, his wife is gone, so and the dog was pretty much killed for him. I mean, he does have that other dog. But, but I think I, I don't think he's looking for the fairy tale ending. I think he's kind of just going on until you know, something takes him down or he's, he's, he's driving until the edge of the cliff. I don't know exactly what's his end game, but it doesn't seem like he's looking for happiness happily ever after. No, even the, said, or even the ending of the first one, when he picks that dog, it, I mean, yeah, he's caged. And you could say that's like a metaphor for the caged animal he is because, and I'm not saying that that dog is like a, an analogy for being vicious, but then again, it is a pit bull and pit bulls are known for, I mean, pit bulls are assigned a nasty reputation for being extremely vicious when they're not, but they can be, they are strong dogs as opposed to that beagle. I mean, I guess that was a beagle that Daisy was, and you would never see anything remotely vicious about that dog at all. Like, no. the, like there's a good contrast there because like take, for instance, the first dog, Daisy, which he only had for one day, she looks like the innocent, peaceful dog that is representative of the peace he was trying to live even after his wife died. While the other dog, which I don't even know that dog's name, he still isn't. John, apparently, I don't know if John has found a name for that dog. I don't. I don't know. Maybe it's one of those things where he doesn't want to name it uh, as to not develop an attachment with it. No, no, that's not. I think it's more like he doesn't know entire. I guess it's a metaphor for the new journey he's on, mm. and he doesn't want to like define, like give it. A, he doesn't have a clear idea where it's going, but he's more alive there than he ever was. Mm. So he's just writing it. He's writing. Yeah. I mean, he's, he definitely has that death drive and he's, he's running towards something. I don't know if he's trying to, and he's, he's, he's in the fourth film. He's uh, presumably trying to take down the high table and he's going to bring the, bring the whole operation down. So where do they go from there? It's a good distraction when you think about it because it means he has more people to kill. 
something to look forward to. Yeah. It's something to distract himself from his, you know, existential dread, knowing that there's no happiness left for him on that world. It died with that puppy and his wife. Oh yeah. When you think about that existential dread before that dog died, remember when he takes it to that hangar where he's reading, you know, when he's riding his Mustang straight into those cars and he just frames it while screaming, like he just needed that edge, the edge of Uh almost killed. Strangely enough, the guy who let him in was reading some Japanese novel named, I don't know what it's called, Shibu something. And it's apparently just, a, I guess that's just like another little, uh, another nice Easter egg about the types of influences that were apparent in this film. Um, what was, what was that? What was the book? I don't know the name of the book. I couldn't find it, but it, I, I mean, I, I found it a while ago. I saw it on Amazon. It's some Japanese novel. So and obviously some warrior based type novel so you obviously get no you get the idea it's another easter egg for the type of influences that are present within john wick and the guy it was was the guy who let him into the hangar who just gave him the signal as he opened the doors and uh but yeah when it comes to his death drive i guess that was i think that was the first hint when he tries to drive his mustang and mustangs that itself is another form of symbolism, given that horses in the Chinese zodiac are creatures of great independence and rage. Mm. And also just a car on a uh, surface level is just an aggressive muscle, muscle car. car. That's, yeah, it's, you know, it's just the, the, the whole being of it, the look of it, the sound of it is just aggression. And uh, it's, it's, perf- it's perfectly fitting for a man with this unbridled rage. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that's why they probably chose the same style for, I mean, I, I would, I'd like to know what kind of muscle car Robert Pattinson has in the Batman. I don't know what the, let me look it up uh, real quick. I mean, I, I hate to bring up Fast and the Furious, but I mean, Dominic Toretto is a, is a man who's uh, constantly seeking vengeance and has a lot of internal rage, and he typically drives muscle cars in those films. So could be a similarity there. Definitely something about that, driving these really loud and powerful cars. Uh, Yeah, it basically says here, Robert Pattinson's Batmobile looks like a modified 1970 Plymouth Barracuda with a Ford Triton V10 engine. Oof. That's that's some power. Yeah, and... V10. (laughs) I mean... I would definitely like to drive the car from John Wick because, I mean, it's a Mustang and it just looks so nice. And it only makes you more excited to know that it might be. I mean, I have a feeling it'll be in the fourth film because, I mean, remember he had it fixed. He wanted it to get fixed in the second film after he fucked it up. Right, right, right. That would be pretty cool to tie it back to the first film with that. What do you think about, obviously, as antagonists, what do you think about, I mean, obviously, Vigo and his son? I mean, his son is more of just like a, a plot device, but. His son is a whimpering fool. And uh, I think they purposely cast that actor as that because at that time, um, Alfie Allen, who's the name of the, car- uh, the actor, he is he was he was playing Theon Greyjoy in Game of Thrones, who's also a very very meek character i mean he has his dick cut off in that show and he becomes like a uh, a pet slave to ramsey bolton and so he's a he's a very like submissive like invalid in that um show and uh 
they purposely cast him as as the the douchey. I I completely believe they had to have because he plays that role so as the son, you know, like this pompous fucking pussy, basically. Like he 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 does this true thing, and then he's sniveling and crying, you know, feeling sorry for himself, you know, terrified of what's gonna happen to him. And he just he plays it really well. I gotta give him credit. He's the, he's the kid born with a silver spoon. He's kind of like the print, like a prince. Because when you look at his dad, you can tell his dad. He had to fucking work to get to where he is. He did, yeah. His dad's a is a man's man, um, whereas himself, he's 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 basically daddy's little, you know, spoiled brat. Yeah, and obviously the way he dresses, he I mean he's a handsome dude, but he's the guy who's never had to really. He will only dirty himself as it's if it's something he think he thinks he can handle. I mean, right. he thought that John Wick was some fucking nobody. Well, look how they look how they confronted John Wick. They confront him in his home. They turn the lights off and they attack him from behind. It's a very cowardish way to, you know, to confront somebody. You know, even his method of doing that, he he shows no courage in the moment where uh, he's asking to buy John's car. It's, he, he does a very cowardish thing and attacks him at night and then kills his dog, which is, I mean, maybe one of the most like deplorable acts you can do he kills an innocent puppy and i mean that also speaks no to his character no hesitation. no hesitation yeah it's the only thing he feels it's like about a man who only hits women it's like the only thing he feels like he has any power over i mean was it him who knocked john out or does he only kick john when he's on the floor and already incapacitated he well i think one of his friends bats him and then he's the one yeah who basically knocks john unconscious for a couple seconds and then they beat him to smithereens on the floor and that's like so that's the extent of his power is like you can beat somebody up when they're already down no, and you can kill a, an innocent puppy no he takes a girl in the club hostage the moment he sees john <laughs> yeah. yeah right right that's a good point <laughs> he's running like I mean, a, he's running with his fucking spa towel throughout the club like a bitch and then the way john kills him is so appropriate you know it's Wait. just quick you know no last words no nothing just it was just a fucking and he just shoots him i mean you'd think john would enjoy torturing but obviously for him to be i like that he didn't that would have been over dramatic i think it would have been a little bit much if he you know grabbed him by the neck and started choking him out i think it says a lot more to his stoicness that he was like i'm just like it's it's almost like nothing personal like i'm just gonna kill you almost kind of like Sicario when um uh what's the actor's <laughs> name in Sicario? I'm blanking. Benicio del Toro. Benicio del Toro. Um when he when he confronts basically the killer of his children, it's very quick. You know, he, he does have a little bit, but he doesn't torture the man. He tortures them in a sense by killing his kids, but I think it's, it's almost personal. like I think it's personal, even for John, but at the same time, you have to I think both are very practical about who they're confronting. I mean exactly. Um, exactly he knows the kid is a, is a worthless piece of shit and there would be no satisfaction in torturing someone who's not even worthy of that while as one of his father he fights him in a hand in hand-to-hand combat and there's more something more respectful about that and when we're yes talking, we're briefly talking about sicario when it comes to benicio Toro's character i look at alejandro as the complete embodiment of a monster that accepts he is a monster. He will not allow his emotions to cloud his judgment. 
he will not morally justify himself. He just feels he is a necessary evil because there's nothing left inside him. I mean, a lot of that sounds like uh, could be applied to Mr. Wick as well. You know, a, a man who doesn't have much of a conscious left is kind of hollow on the inside and is just uh, singular, singularly focused on his goal. And uh, whatever's in his way, he's going to take out. doesn't matter. Um, Benicio's is a little bit more personal. I mean, not really, though. They both are really avenging their lost family. Um, and, and the way they do it in a very, uh, they're both assassins, but the way they do it in such a quick way, I mean, the when Benicio is at that dinner table scene, and fantastic scene, you can tell that the, the drug lord thinks he's going to be able to weasel himself out of it. He's going to be able to let his family live. And the way Benicio just so mercilessly kills his family in front of him and then quickly gives him the, the shot in the head. It's just like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know? To be fair, he did make it a little personal in the last seconds when he shoots it because first he shoots him off. You don't see it, but the, you can tell the shot went in the chest so he could uh, watch him die, and then he goes for the headshot. And then there's a mild change of, of emotional expression on his face when he does it. He gets angry, right? Mm, mildly. Like, you yeah. know, in a way, this guy had something to do with his family being killed. I was not always say... Uh... It wasn't personal. I mean, it was what Benicio says something along our lives. It was for me. It was, and that's like very simply put. And that's all. That's all he needed to say. Like, well, I mean, uh, his daughter was his daughter was thrown in a vat of acid. Uh, yeah, it doesn't get any more personal than that. Right. 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 Um, so yeah, I mean, that's another revenge story that's so fantastic. I mean, I think there's something about these revenge stories about a man who's a uh, you know, kind of just let go of everything else and just is focused on obtaining revenge that's so appealing to people. I think Maybe it's because we all secretly want to do that or there's something we want to get revenge over and we, we think it's drawn to that. I think it's more meant to be like a form of liberation against the conventions of society because I remember watching this old clip of Charles Bukowski describing a party he had, a party he was in where he was drunk and there was this other drunk guy and they were having and they ended up having an argument. The guy pulls a gun on him and he just says, Hey, buddy, you know what? You're doing me a favor because I'm already a suicide case. You got it, you're pretty uh. brave for you, what you're doing. Cause if you're doing that in a war zone, they give you a medal. Here, they put you in prison for life. And that kind of illustrates a hypocrisy about modern society. We condemn we condemn murder, yet if we send a few soldiers over to a different country where they're pretty much doing the same thing they're given medals of valor and honor. And I doubt they feel that they, that they're heroes for doing that. A lot of them. And right. Anyways, I think that's the attraction of the revenge angle. There's like a liberating, like say fuck the morals and conventions of society. Somebody hurt me. There was no justice. There was none of the justice that this society stresses. So I'm just going to do things my way. And if you stand in my way, you're just another door for me to break down. <laughs> Well put. Similar to uh, Ben Affleck's character in the town where he tells uh, Jeremy Renner's character, um, I need you to come with me and we're going to hurt some people and you can't ask me about it. And uh, <laughs> Jeremy Renner says, who's driving or something like that. And it's just like, yeah, sometimes you're just like, I'm going to get revenge and uh, it's going to be sweet. And uh, we've all had that impulse. I mean, well, Jeremy Renner. 
with Jeremy Renner's character, he's had such a hard life and he grew up in a rough environment that he realizes that's a greater reality than the bullshit that they're fed. That, that we're yeah. fed about the world and what's right and wrong. Because at the end of the day, laws are made by, by human beings and they're flawed. And I got... Yeah. I mean... I, and, I, I, go ahead. I, I don't know. I was going to say, I like the, the law of the the um the continental and the assassinship assassinhood if you will um or it's kind of very like almost sharia law like like if you do something wrong like you're gonna pay for it with your life you know kind of like in sharia law if you steal they're gonna cut your hand off and it sounds brutal but almost maybe a little bit more effective than some of the conventional laws we have where people well, just wouldn't say more effective so much as it unravels some of the bullshit that we're willing to drop when the moment comes. I mean, I guess you yeah, can, it's like, more primal. I guess I, I know I, I noticed this while watching the last detail because even though it's a black comedy, the plot of the movie is Jack Nicholson and Otis Young are these two Marines and they're escorting Randy Quaid, young Randy Quaid, very young, to be put in prison. And he's a Marine too. And guess what his crime was? He stole $40 from a charity for polio children. I'm like, that's it. And he's going to get eight years for that. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. So what? How much does the military industrial complex steal from taxpayers? Jeez. And, yeah. the, and, and even Jack Nicholson and Otis Young are like, he's, gonna, he's not going to survive prison. Because they know deep down this is bullshit. I mean, it's retarded. And they actually... It, I mean, you should check it out. It's on HBO Max. It's a really good movie. It's written by the guy who did Chinatown, Robert Town, who's still alive at 86. Wow. A legend. Living legend. He, he collaborated on a lot of scripts. I mean, he was like an uncredited collaborator on many really great scripts for movies we've seen. Mm. He wrote the script for Chinatown. And uh, yeah, with the last detail, he wrote that too. I even have like a booklet that has the script for Chinatown and the last detail. And I've read the, the Chinatown script repeatedly. I haven't read the script for the last detail, even though I just saw the movie. And, but yeah, going back to that, the whole revenge thing, how it just unravels so many conventions of society that we stress as morally just, but ultimately, I guess that's why I'm attracted to Nietzsche so much. He says, you have to create your own morals. Hmm. And I think that's a more honest way. I mean, it's definitely not perfect, but it's more honest. I mean, look at Walter White. Do you honestly think he's a worse person as Heisenberg than he was the Walter in the beginning who wasn't even a person? He was just nice out of complacency. Yeah, almost posturing in a way. Nice because he had his balls chopped off. He, he was a man with no conviction, whereas he's almost like liberated when he's allowed to be Heisenberg. Uh, that's part of the brilliance of the show is that uh, I think that uh, it's not that he enjoys it. He enjoys being Heisenberg because it's almost like his, you know, it's almost like uh, Walter White is the mask and Heisenberg is the true face in a sense. And uh, I'm always, I always uh, am fascinated by projects that tackle that topic. You know, speaking of Nietzsche, uh, you were referencing about creating your own morals. You know, Richard Dawkins always says that, you know, you don't need a, 
you don't need God in the world to have morals. I mean, people can create their own morals. You don't need, uh, you know, fear of exist, uh, of eternal suffering to uh, make you a good person. And uh, I believe that to be true. You know, you can create your own morals in this framework that we call a society. And yeah, I, don't know. I think that's kind of happening now because some some philosophers assume that Nietzsche predicted the 21st century when he said God is dead. Because a lot of people thought took that in a simplistic way of him saying there is no God when he wasn't saying that. He was saying that our reliance on God as a moral framework was dying out and that because of us, and that he felt that it would lead us to an existential panic given the dependency so many people had put on it. And that's why well, not he, only that, a lot of people feel like the West is a decaying society and uh, not only losing morals and God, I mean we're we're losing ground on a lot of stuff. I mean, people are incredibly, you know, depressed and having mental illness and stuff that you don't see in other parts of the world that maybe have a little bit more of a reliance on faith. And that's not to say that that's the reason why they're not having as many issues as the West, but there's an interesting parallel there between like the, 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 the downtrend and the belief in God and also like, the uptick in a lot of things like mental illness, like gender identity issues, like, I don't know, you know what I mean? There's a lot of issues going on in the world today. Uh, and then there's a lot of, which is what I hate most. I mean, I'm a liberal myself, but there's a lot of virtue signaling, you know, people pretending they have a certain set of morals that they really don't just so that they can uh, fit into the social norm. And oh. I hate that. Oh, you know, people going to Black Lives Matter rallies matters just to take a picture to show that they were there and then not actually doing anything. Like it's like that's it's very it's like the praying in public. Praying in public. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That Jordan Peterson was talking about because I'm not sure what Jordan Peterson believes in it because he regards himself as a Christian atheist, or I'm not sure anymore. Because if you were to ask him to be you believe in God, and he then he's gonna throw the question, what do you mean by God? And that's a brilliant way of looking at it. But even he, I mean, he's definitely into Nietzsche and he understands what Nietzsche was discussing because even the people who believe in God today, they don't, they don't treat the idea in the same way as they did before Nietzsche had made that declaration because there's something more profound of that, with that association that society was more functioning because they had a deeper understanding of it. Now it's more superficial. I mean, let's be honest. Mega churches are the per perfect example of this. I mean, they're basically market enterprises using Christianity as just another aspect of capital, of the worst aspects of capitalism. Yeah, Joel Osteen is one of the worst offenders of that. I mean, the guy is almost a charlatan at this point. He's literally, you know, in you this know, fucking massive mega church standing before thousands of people, one of the richest man pastors in the world. Yeah, it's just like, this is a fucking joke. I mean, I mean he's you not, know, if you believe in a Jesus Christ, he's not Ted you know. Haggard or Jimmy Swagger. I mean, those guys, I mean, no, or no, uh, we don't know or, yet. Uh, we don't know yet because we don't have Tammy Faye. I don't know which one Tammy Faye is. Well, there was a recent movie with Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield called The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which was about two popular uh, evangelical pastors who kind of popularized this movement about uh, asking for donations and such you know televangelism as it's called um 
I say, uh, but but then again, Joel Olstein has had his own scandal with that that hurricane. What happened with the hurricane? Which hurricane was it that he? Didn't yeah, he he dog? wouldn't allow people to take refuge in his church, which okay. is really just despicable if you consider yourself a man of God. I mean, yeah, no sex okay. scandal, just leave leaving the poor to 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 die outside while a massive storm, a lethal storm. Yeah, a, a man who's supposed to stand for the. I mean, the, he's supposed to have the conviction and uh, of a of a of Jesus Christ. He's supposed to represent his teachings, and you're over here, you know, worshiping your worldly possessions like your church. Like, dude, you are such a fucking charlatan. It's I don't know how people don't see it. That's the real fallacy. But it's the same people who vote for a guy like Donald Trump, who's you know the biggest phony there is. So. He's a huckster. We live in a weird world. Exactly. Exactly. Whereas, yeah. you know, you look at you look at the East, you know, a, a country like Japan, where there's um, the society is a lot more structured with what people believe. They don't necessarily believe in a God, but there's a uh, there's an ethic and there's a respect for one another that I feel like we don't have here. I heard that. I mean, I can't say I can't speak for Japan because I don't know how structured their society is. Maybe culturally, economically, I heard it's pretty bad there. Yeah, I'm talking more of a cultural uh, appreciation for how they do things there, uh, especially for how they treat their elders. Hmm, that's true. And uh, when it comes to the the whole, the, I guess the uh, the unraveling aspect of John Wick's world. I think that 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 world of assassins is probably the real world. I mean, basically just how the world really works because there's something about those assassins. Like they have this wisdom and this awareness of how the world really is that they look at average people. They probably see average people as the people who are just deluded living in in an illusion. The matrix. Right. I mean, being plugged in, just going from day to day and not really understanding what that's why I have the Matrix theory about the whole series because I'd rather believe that than believe the sequels existed. I mean, it does make sense for why John is able to do everything he's able to do. How if he actually not, wasn't, yeah. Not just that, but even just certain moments in the series where it just makes you realize something is definitely going on that isn't. Mm. Right. I'll have to discuss that when we discuss the other films. Oh yeah, chapter two. I'm really excited for that because I mean that's just that that's where they just took it to a whole new level. And chapter three, I mean, I've only seen it once and you've only seen it once, so we gotta rewatch it to form a better opinion. Cause I've seen the first two multiple times and it took me a while to get to see the third one. And and I and I do find the third one fascinating. Mm, likewise. Uh, I'm excited to rewatch it. Uh, because I actually don't remember enough of the details to uh, to accurately review it. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to rewatching and two as well. I've only seen two like twice, so I'm looking forward to rewatching that one as well. Because I do really like two, and I like the inclusion of Common in that film. I feel like he's a good. Uh, oh, he's great. You know, he's great opposite John. You know, do you feel bad you. that they didn't have him in the third one? I do. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of Halle Berry in the third one. I don't remember why. I just remember that was like my, I didn't like that, that they were doing that dynamic, but um, I'm excited to see where they take it. I mean, I love Lawrence Fishburne's character. I gotta be honest. He's fucking and then, awesome. And that makes you feel like it's a callback to the Matrix. 
It does. I mean, they definitely did that on purpose. They didn't just cast, out of all the people they could have cast, they cast Lawrence Fishburne. They know what they were doing. You know what I mean? In many ways, he's playing a Morpheus type of role where he knows more things than Neo does. And exactly. only Neo can turn to him to help him out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So there might be more to your theory than meets the eye. Well, to be fair, these films were crafted by the stunt cord, the stunt doubles of Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Matrix movie. And Keanu might have had some input on it himself. He might have probably. I mean, let's face it. No movie is made with the same script that started it. It changes over time, even in the process of making the movie. I mean, we have Stanley Kubrick as that prime example for The Shining. Right. 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 There's so many iterations. I mean, who knows how many rewrites the script went through or how many times they were probably changing it over the course of filming. And actors, right? The actors and some of the crew members will probably make suggestions and incorporate it into them. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it does feel like a collaborative effort. And I feel like Keanu definitely probably has some input on a lot of it. I mean, it, it feels like a very Keanu. I mean, the film, he, it's, he's the driving force of the film. I mean, everybody else is secondary. So I wouldn't be shocked if he had some input on where he wanted the story to go or end, because this might be the most important franchise of his career. I mean, The Matrix is the most important film but arguably you could say that this is going to be what he's going to be remembered for most, these five films. Well, I mean, the fact that he even has the, for the most part, he looks like John Wick in terms of he carries the, he still maintains the goat, the beard, the long hair. That's his exact look. Yeah. He doesn't, he almost looks identical in real life to John Wick. And yeah, a decade ago, he was complete. He had the complete shaved look, short hair. Yeah. Devil's Devil's Advocate, yeah. Uh, Lake, the Lake House. <laughs> um, I've never seen. I mean, I, I mean, Sandra Bullock. Uh, but and, and the fact that he even mastered a lot of this, the gun stunts gun himself. Fu. Like you can watch Gung Fu. You actually can watch behind the scenes stuff of him practicing that. That's impressive. One, I mean, I guess on a final note, I also like that John Wick's character, he's not built to be this super fit archetype. I mean, he's in great shape in terms of his physicality, what he can do. But in the third one, you see he doesn't even have a six pack. And that just shows you that how how they're trying to stick to the whole rustiness of him. Yeah, kind of a dad bod almost, you know, he's got some muscle, but not not anything really well defined or anything like that. Well, Keanu Reeves in his 50s, so maintaining your physique at that age when i don't know i mean really i like that though i like that that it's not it's he's not this super cut up muscular guy yeah i mean not saying that wouldn't well i mean they could probably cut him up more to even to make it natural they could have done that but they chose not to because to show you this guy he's not in the prime of who he used to be when he was baba yaga not only that, he just doesn't feel like the kind of guy that would put a lot of effort into maintaining his physique because, you know, as somebody like Bruce Wayne and the Batman, his physique is very vital to him being successful as Batman. So it makes sense that the he Batman would... or Batman in general, because in the Batman, he's in good shape, but his body's he's... not super cut. 
He's cut and he's muscular though. And he's cut to the point. He's not like Ben Affleck's Batman who's kind of let himself go. He's muscular, but he's kind of more like John Wick where it's like, he might not putting as much emphasis on his physique. Hence the point where he's like that cheesy sequence where he's pulling the weights. It's like, Oh, so is this implying that he's working out for the first time in a while? Um, whereas uh, the Robert Pattinson as the Batman looks like he, he, he knows that it's very key to success as Batman because he gets into a lot of close calls. So I would argue that he puts a lot of emphasis on his physique. Where and so is Christian Bale's Batman. Whereas yeah, but Bale's uh, is more cut, more cut up. I noticed that Pattinson's is cut. Bale's is more a little bit more bulky. Pattinson's yeah. is more slender. It's slender cut, but in a way where it's not like Bruce Lee cut. Because when you look at the iconic trim cut, you think of Bruce Lee and. Robert he's Pattinson. not shredded. Yeah, he's not shredded like Bruce Lee was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's weird comparing Bruce Lee to Batman, but when you look at all interpret the common interpretations of Batman, whether he's lean or or bulky, it's always like a shredded type of physique where it's so cut that you'd be amazed if there's any body fat. Yeah, like he's unilaterally focused on being Batman, so he's going to take every measure to ensure he's successful. Like he probably doesn't eat fast food. He probably. I mean, his workout regimen is probably impeccable, but you don't get that from Ben Affleck's Batman, which is interesting. I mean, he doesn't, he, it's kind of like John Wick. Like I can't imagine a man who's this empty inside putting that much emphasis into his physique. That's why it makes sense that he kind of has this kind of like worn down body where he's not really an assassin. When he was an active assassin, John probably was shredded and had an insane physique because it was his job to be that. Now, that just person. every aspect of him is focused on self-destruction. And I think we'll talk yeah. about that more in the second one, given that I think that there's a lot of elements of his self-destruction that is explored in the second one. Right, right, definitely. I think it dives a little bit deeper, not only to the world building of the, uh, the continental and the high table, but also his psyche. Oh, yeah. And that's definitely going to be fun to explore. So for sure, I'm- for sure. Any closing thoughts on John Wick that you still feel you need to share? Or? No, I mean, I just, I think, I think uh, I've, I've come a little bit to your side. I would say that it's a class. This is a classic that probably is going to be remembered um, for, for, for some time to come. I don't know before we even review it. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say the second one and the third one are, I think this one is the best of the series. And uh it's also just, it's it's my favorite too, personally. I think this is like almost a perfect action film. And uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. Well, my final thoughts are that it's hard to say which one I like the most because one thing I like about the sequels is they expand that world that was crafted in this first one, but in a way where you didn't expect it. And I guess that's something that's in development that maybe when the series ends, I'll know for sure if I like the first one more than the other two, but I definitely believe it has a much more classic feel given that it started everything. And it was, and it is an original, it is an original movie. It is very original. Not I mean, a it's not based off a book. Yeah. That's very rare these days. It's not a sequel. It's not a remake. It's not a requel. It's uh, not based on a book or any IP. It's just like this original story that really resonated with people. Well, hopefully the the ones that come out will do the same. For sure. I hope they continue. I have faith in them because they are taking their time 
I mean, it's at this point, it will have been three, four years since the last one came out. So Most I feel like the script will probably be pretty tight. And just from the teaser, the teaser looked really badass. And again, the choreography and cinematography looked like and they're amazing. And they're definitely looking to up the action even more now that they're using having him use katanas. One thing that's interesting is this, you can see that this story, like we're, we're, we're reaching a critical point. Like it's, it's getting to the point where something has to end here. Like this can't keep escalating. Like every film they've escalated it. The first film ended and the second film ends with him uh, killing, I forget the antagonist's name, but he kills him uh, within the continental. And then, yes, exactly. And then the third film ends with him trying to take down the entire high table. So it's like, what's the fourth film going to be? You know, there's not much left to do. So I'm interested to see where they're going to go with it. Well, we'll talk about that more in our review for chapter two. John, thanks again for doing this. For sure. For sure. I'm looking forward to it. Be seeing you, John. (laughs) Be seeing you, Andres. (laughs) 